It's that time again. Time to catch up with family. Time to share that home cooking that you've been craving. And yes, time to update your COVID vaccine. Updated vaccines now protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron. They're here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special. Schedule your free vaccine today. Find updated COVID vaccines for everyone ages 5 and up at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Kylie Ng. Kylie is a managing managing partner at U.S. venture capital firm 500 Global and its 500 Southeast Asia family of funds. 500 is a venture capital firm managing over $3 billion. Kylie has led more than 180 seed investments in Southeast Asian tech startups, including Unicorns Grab, Carousel, Piccolopak, Carsum, Prenetics, and other regional champions. Prior to 500, he was the founder of Groups more acquired by Groupon and Malaysia's largest online media company says.com and listed it on the Malaysian Stock Exchange. As new technology and evolving consumer landscapes continue to disrupt industries, Kylie focuses on discovering patterns of economic opportunity and backing the entrepreneurs who realize them. His investment activity and commentaries on industry trends have been featured in the Financial Times, Bloomberg, TechCrunch, Wall Street Journal, and Fortune. Kylie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Maggie. We're very excited to have you on the podcast today, Kylie. So we'd love to jump right into it. Tell us, where were you born and raised? And talk about what it was like for you growing up, because I've read in a couple of articles that you've always had a very creative spirit as a child. Yeah, I was born in Malaysia and spent entire my entire upbringing over here up until only college. Then I managed to escape, you know, and, and find myself in Australia and then the U.S. But growing up in Malaysia and the upbringing, it, it's kind of unique because like growing up, I didn't. And I think this is the same for a lot of a lot of your guests and, and yourself, but it, it's hard to kind of know and feel like what's it like in a relative term because you kind of grow up in the, so for me, I just grew up in Malaysia. All I knew was growing up in Malaysia. So there's no relative comparison. Hey, was it great? Was it not like whatnot? Right. Oh, am I rich? Am I poor? It's like kind of like hard to fully tell. <laughs> then only later on, you're like, oh, okay. So that's kind of what it was like. But uh, what it was was that I, I need to kind of backtrack a little to kind of paint the picture. Very, very humble upbringing. My dad, and it really began with my dad. So my dad and mom, like their parents came from a junk ship in China and my mom's parents landed somewhere towards Singapore and my dad's parents landed in Johor, which is south of Malaysia. So my dad's family were grew up in a rubber, rubber estate, right? Where my dad's 10 older siblings had their life savings for saved up so that my dad could actually go to college. And so when my dad did, you know, he saved up so his younger brother could go, but more importantly, like he bought computers for me. And my older brother, a younger brother and I, like we had just computers growing up. We had Apple IIe, Atari ST, and a lot of machines in the house. Until today, my dad doesn't know how to operate a single machine, but he's, he's just made sure that we had that, right? So even though we didn't really have too much growing up and my, my mom and dad were very frugal and I believe they were richer than they actually made us feel, okay? Just strictly looking at everything else, right? But, but we had computers. 
And I think a lot of that helped us ex- help me express my creativity. You mentioned a little bit about creative stuff. Like I drew so much, I wrote a lot, whether it's poetry or short stories, you know, I created a lot of music. I remember I was eight years old, there's a little show and tell in school and I performed new kids on the block, the right stuff alone with no music. I was like singing and dancing. It was like the weirdest thing. So when looking back on all of those experiences, I'm like, what would possess an eight year old to embarrass himself like that? It's doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But lo and behold, of course, internet and computers became the ultimate creativity tool. And so you and I are on this podcast right now, right? As, and, and so many of us are part of the creator economy as an extension of that unlimited creativity that technology allows us to do. And of course, we can talk a bit more about how that ended up in the world of business. But upbringing was beautiful. I, I loved growing up in Malaysia and it was a cozy little place, but it was a great playground for me. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 awesome to hear just like your childhood and like how it kind of shaped you to become the person that you are today. Because like, I mean, I've listened to podcasts before, you know, getting on a podcast recording with you today and just read so many articles. Like I'm telling you, there's like endless articles about you. And I know that when a lot of people say that you are a successful entrepreneur, investor, all of that. You're extremely humble as well. You never like to say it, but just seeing how far you've come is amazing. And just, you know, you know, Maggie, you know, I'd love to bounce on that a little bit, you know, when we talk about success, right. And successful. And again, it's not about like, I mean, let's just put aside concepts of humility and, 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 or braggadociousness, you know, if that's even such a word, but, um, you know, I've been reflecting a lot on what success means, you know, and how to build a healthy relationship with that concept. So I, I hit out a tweet a couple of weeks ago called success is a timestamp. And the reason I say that, because I think that it's my latest iteration of how, of what, of what that means. I mean, of, 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 of my concept around success. So, I mean, at the time, I think a lot of us have been tuned into like just short 12 months ago, crypto was huge, right? Anyone who's building a Web3 project would feel incredibly successful. Anyone, anyone who's early in crypto before all of this would feel immensely successful 12 months ago or six months ago. Anyone who was raising a SPAC, right? And successfully listed a SPAC, a SPAC to any companies like 12 to 18 months ago, like felt incredibly successful. In fact, a lot of unicorns who are raising huge money from SoftBank Vision Fund at one point and in Tiger will feel incredibly successful. But in a lot of that feelings of success, like in that moment on those timestamps, like you can hit pause on the YouTube video of success of your life story for a moment and be like, hey, I feel so successful. And then you can hit play and you can continue that, that thing. But on a different timestamp, you're like, oh, wow, you know, like I've put all this effort into this back. Now I wouldn't even dare to list it because like the market's not going to accept it. Or you would say that like, I've just like left my company. I left my job in so-and-so big company to join this web tree company and they can't even pay me anymore. Or the payment in the mix of X and Y cryptocurrencies isn't worth as much or whatever, right? So you can hit play, you can hit forward and hit play again. And maybe like two years from now, like you are like a billionaire or something, right? And then you hit play again. So I feel like there's so many times we can look into our past, like you hit rewind on that YouTube video of your life or hit forward on a YouTube video on life. And you can, you know, have moments of success. And then, when, but when you realize that success is so much, so timestamp dependent, then you're like, hey, wait a minute, maybe I'm not really that attached to that story in the first place. Maybe I don't care as much about chasing success, or maybe I care a little bit more about those timestamps and how that really creates like a longer narrative of your life that's meaningful to you. 
So yeah, anyways, I just wanted to bounce on that point. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. And I think a lot of people who do become quote unquote successful, they realize that that success can be taken away at any moment, right? It's not guaranteed, right? And so I think that's why a lot of people are so afraid of like failure, afraid that the success that they've achieved will be taken away from that at any time. But you're right, those can come in waves. You can become successful in one year and, you know, not be successful in another year. But two years later down the road, maybe it will change again. And and then there's a like relative also that like relative, you can feel FOMO, like you feel like, mm-hmm. oh, you're on top of the world or maybe like Asian Hustle Network is like killing it in this podcast. And then somebody else like has this other podcast which just like totally ballooned way past and you you try to learn from them, you know, you you respect and learn from your competitors, you know, and what they've done or other references that inspire you. But you know, 5% of you like, what did I do wrong? Like, why is my podcast, for example, like not as fast growing as that or didn't hit that in the same amount of time? Do you know what I mean? And so I think it's easy to feel FOMO or have this relative comparison, especially in a world where we're so, we're just surrounded by success media all the time. Like it's easy for us to suddenly use relative benchmarks to value ourselves. But in absolute terms, like we're in a point of history where in society, a lot of us can win, have the opportunity to win more than we we ever have in absolute terms, right? right? So yeah, I mean, we can triple click on this as much as you like but hey let's let's we can move on to other topics too. yeah <laughs> so let's talk about your journey kylie okay i, I mean our listeners w- would love to l- learn about your personal journey you know after you left malaysia you say you you know moved your way to australia and then to the states to pursue your dream i know you had you had a dream of breaking into the silicon valley startup ecosystem and then you were brought on as a 500 startups entrepreneur in residence I want to know how old were you at that time and what was it like working in Silicon Valley at that time? Okay, so here's the thing, right? And this is for a lot of people who did not grow up in America, especially if you come from like a smaller country, like Malaysia or something else. Like I feel a lot of us have grown up and myself, I grew up with feeling like, oh, so-and-so thing, you can do it in the US. You can order a book online and have it delivered to you. Oh, you can do that in the US. And you feel like all this distant magic happens somewhere in the US. <laughs> and so, and and so of course, like you'd be like, all right, well, I want to go to the US and see what this is all about. Of course, this day and age, like my younger brother, like he would rather go to Korea than the US because he's more influenced by Korean media. But, you know, if you're influenced enough by American media, you would imagine that this better world is out there. So for me, doing the student exchange to the U.S. for me was like my first immersion. And, and I was in San Francisco in that year and it was fantastic. That being said is that I was also pretty inspired to see how the internet can proliferate throughout back in Malaysia. Because and everything that was mainstream in the U.S. at time, I didn't think that it would not become mainstream in Malaysia. I, w- I didn't think that it would not become mainstream in Indonesia, Singapore, or anywhere else. I feel, and 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 looking back, like the it, America's internet population, Malaysia, the sorry, the US's internet population is just like four percent of the world's internet population, and it's it's inevitable that everything that you, you will become so mainstream elsewhere. So going back to Malaysia to build those two companies was just a natural extension of that. And, and in, at the time, like a lot of my peers would be building just about anything, like you would achieve some degree of success if you kind of worked hard at it and you're willing to be a complete misfit and totally be misunderstood by your parents for about 10 years. But if you <laughs> go through that, like at the time, like you, you're like early innovator and adopter enough. But naturally, after building and selling those two companies, you asked about age, I was 30 years old. It was just like a magic number. It was plus minus 30, I kind of, and I was, 
you know, after building and selling two companies, I had more money than I had targeted to have, you know, it, at least in, in, in my low ambitions at the time (laughs) and like the, but, but it's a very special conversation point with my dad where I told him, I said, Hey, look, this money that has been made, like it's because your brothers and sisters, your had, had the life savings kind of going for you to go to school. And so you bought me those computers. And, and my dad's been working his ass off my mom too, like for the entire careers. And to think that like it's in my twenties, the money that's made from technology companies is more than the life savings of multiple generations. It's just like that concept was just, it's just mind blowing. Right. And it made me believe so much that other people could also have this chance to ride that roller coaster to build generational wealth in a handful of years. And so that inspired me to become an angel investor. So before I went to Silicon Valley, like I just wanted to surround myself with people who had the same hustle, right? Who had the same energy of wanting to obsess for a couple of years and willing to be, to feel like a complete loser for a bunch of years, right? Just to build something they believed in. And so, and so I was angel investing and I was helping other companies and other people get started. I was incubating new startups in my living room. But at some point I was like, to be good at this, I want to learn from the best. And then it kind of rekindled the idea to go back to the U S so buying like a plane ticket and, and landing in the U S in Silicon Valley meeting with VCs. I met, I had meetings scheduled up with some of the top names. I was very grateful. They, they made time to meet me, but that was when I learned a few real harsh realities, I guess. The first one was that at the time Silicon Valley had not been very aggressive about investing in the rest of the world. And for good reason, you know, I think the opportunity cost is too high and naturally people may not want to extend into an area where it's not their genius zone. Like it's, you just need like a higher, more reason to do so. Right. So most of Silicon Valley was focused on a Silicon Valley first, and they would encourage the best of the best global tent to come Silicon Valley to build the companies. And all of that was incredibly rational. Number two is that I, while I thought that Silicon Valley would offer, you know, would, would be a more would have like more talented entrepreneurs. The funny thing I, I, I went, when just revisiting again, I realized that most of the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley weren't even from the, from Silicon Valley. I was like, speaking of Vivek Wadwa, who wrote this book, The Immigrant Exodus, like he was, he said six, according to his data, 60% of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, like they, they, they weren't from the Valley. They went from the U S and thirdly is I, I discovered that a lot of people who were from the U S are not from the U S like they're just as smart as any one in anywhere else. You know, and so I think that, but what was very, very different was of course the density of network and the density of access to capital. And so I thought, okay, we just have to bring the density of, of network and, and access to capital elsewhere. Like that's the way to do it. Right. I, I was a bit naive, but I was just disheartened because nobody thought that I was rational, right. <laughs> About that. So on my last flight, the last day, the very last day before I would leave completely disillusioned and. And I met with some people at 500 Global. Back then they were called 500 Startups and they were like two years old, I think. And they were also a ragtag bunch of misfits. And you know, they were, but, but they were actively investing in the rest of the world. They could speak to like the best Shisha was in Haji Lane at the time in Singapore. They could talk to the difference between what is Manila versus Makati City. They could talk about, they were so geo aware. They were so well-traveled and they had cut investments in, in all these different parts of the world. I was particularly impressed that they had invested in Vicky out in Singapore that, you know, when early kind of K drama Netflix type companies that sold to Rakuten for 200 million, I was so impressed. I told myself, these are my people. I told myself that 
I would work with them and we would kind of like build for other people in the world who also felt the same way about their potential. It took me a while to earn that trust. But, you know, I worked hard at it. I volunteered myself to be an entrepreneur in residence to just be there. I say, hey, I work for free. Then no, 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 no. Please, let's pay you something, some stipend or whatever. And then so I, I took some loose pocket change and was, uh, you know, was actively mentoring. Next thing you know, I was like actively mentoring companies in Silicon Valley. That's amazing. I mean, there's so many points there that I have to agree with because coming from someone who grew up in San Francisco, I was born and raised in San Francisco. Mm. So you're absolutely right when you're saying like no one in San Francisco is actually from San Francisco or no one from Silicon Valley is actually from Silicon Valley. Every time I would take an Uber and they asked me if I'm, you know, where I'm from and I would say I'm from San Francisco, they would never believe me because Mm. everyone who lived there in SF or Silicon Valley, they were all transplants. They were not natives, Mm. right? Yeah, at least a huge majority of them, right? The the, the truly local folks are hiding somewhere, but you know, I guess. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And building Asian Hustle Network, I can't agree more when we have conversations with entrepreneurs outside of the US. I think there's this really big misconception that entrepreneurs in the US are better than everyone else, better than entrepreneurs in other countries. And I think that we just get more exposure. We just have like this limelight that, you know, tells everyone else in the world that people in the US are the best, we have the best resources, right? And it's only because we get more exposure, we get more resources because the the funding and the opportunities are here. It's not because we're any more smarter, right? And when we're talking to entrepreneurs in Asia, entrepreneurs in Australia, Canada, other countries, they're actually way more fast paced in a lot of different ways than we are, I would say, you know, if not the same, if, if not more, at least, you know, the same pace. But I would say, there are so many entrepreneurs outside of the U.S. that don't get enough attention because we're so focused on, you know, entrepreneurs in the U.S. are the best. We have, you know, the best talent out here. But you're, you're yeah. There, there, there's a huge, there's huge uh, media momentum and media machinery. Yeah. That makes it more convenient to profile, you know, to profile different entrepreneurs of a certain type. But it's uh, media organizations like yourself, in a lot of ways, you know, who which Asian Hustle Network that surfaces alternative narratives. And at 500 Global, that's what we care to do as well. So I'll give you an example. Like we manage now about three billion US dollars in assets under management. We, we've we've invested in three thousand companies in eighty countries. And like in terms of region coverage, we're talking about 400 companies in the Middle East. We're talking about over 400 or 500 companies in Latin America. We're talking about over 300 plus companies in Southeast Asia, so and so forth. No doubt half of our companies are still Silicon Valley and American companies, but we're covering a lot of other markets. But what I'm truly, truly proud of is that we've got 51 of those companies have become unicorns. And from those 51 unicorns, half of them, non-US, non-China, non-India. So they're basically rest of the world unicorns. And from those stories, we learn, we, we learn from each other and we, we start to be, we start to see the kind of ways that the rest of the world innovates. And it gives us a, a front row seat to be able to tell those stories as well. So like you'll see a lot more for 500 Global in the coming years as we also flex some media muscle to be able to kind of like offer alternative narrative. I, I'll say also one other thing as well, right? Like it's something that we try to learn to do better. And we also want to succeed in our own game. And it isn't because we're from the rest of the world or we're a minority or this or that, you know, it's not our misfit. You know, that, that is besides the point. It's not about us and where we're from and who we are. It's what we offer to the world. What are we building for people? And I think the general thesis is that if we have different kind of backgrounds and upbringings and we have a lot of diversity in that, then we'll be able to build more for, for different people. 
So hence, we'll be building for the rest of the world. You know, it'd be more likely someone from the rest of the world or, or global first citizens, as I call it, would be able to build for more parts of the world. And I think that will be like a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you saw the potential in Southeast Asia and went on to establish the Southeast Asia division at 500 Startups, which was called 500 Durians which I love the name I, by, yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah, you know, at the start, like that was the fund name, you know, uh, we've recently uh, ca- calibrated that, you know, it, it turns out like different people have appreciation for fruits. Yeah. And th- so we've, we've, we've calibrated that to now become just 500 Southeast Asia. <laughs> so okay. Back, back to a more descriptive <laughs> I, name, right? Because uh, otherwise it'd be like a two-step explanation. I'm like, oh, do it, cool. And then like we have to talk about which countries they were, but like, hey, look, Southeast Asia. <laughs> That's a good um, conversation starter though. <laughs> it is, it is, you know, it, it is, you know, but we're, yeah. So I think with 500 Southeast Asia, it was 2014, right? Eventually after the EIR stint, you know, I kind of like worked with 500 to say, look, let's create a platform for local new emerging VCs to launch funds. And then we can support them with like what, what I would call fund in a box, right? And then like you do fund in a box, like you get legal finance, you get playbooks, we access the data, we'll learn and we'll share. So that was the original idea, which helped perpetuate ourselves to 30 funds, you know, as of this year. But for 500 Southeast Asia, it was the second fund in that, that iteration. The first ever kind of like sub fund, if you will, or, 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 or regional focus fund was 500 Mexico. So I, I wasn't sure actually if I would be a VC. Like I wasn't sure at all. Like at the ten, at the time, like I mean, I'm I'm like 30 years old and like discovering a lot of new things. You know, I wasn't I wasn't ready to commit <laughs> at the time. But I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to do something. But you have to remember, venture capital funds—they're like 10-year vehicles mostly. And so that's like a long commitment to say, hey, look, I'm gonna do this at 30. I'll be done by 40, right? That's a big commitment. So I wasn't sure. So I spoke to Santiago who made that leap to do 500 Mexico and he was already operating his own fund and he had his own momentum in Mexico. Sat down, I remember where we had a burger in Mountain View and he was like, I said, why'd you do it, Santi? Why not just continue to do your own thing? Why not build a company? He's a software engineer. He's a successful entrepreneur. You can build companies, do whatever you want, man. Why do this? He said, Kylie, only, there's only once in a while I've come, I come across an opportunity to change the trajectory of my country and my region. So that's why I'm doing it. So I was like, hmm, okay, I'm in. You know what I mean? And so, and so, so, so 2014, right? I said, okay, let's raise this Southeast Asia fund. Responses we got were like, hey, how's the internet access over there? Credit card penetration super low. Internet penetration super low. And and you know, like a lot of those markets, like there are no Series A or B or C investors at all. Like it makes zero sense to do a fund in Southeast Asia. In fact, there were some folks within the firm as well were like, hey, maybe you can concentrate in some other regions, right? But you know, but but the ultimate conclusion was is that if if there weren't people to actually start seeding companies, then you wouldn't kickstart that virtuous cycle of having series A firms, B firms, C firms, that, that ecosystem wouldn't even emerge. Like someone's gonna make that first move. Like there's there's no chicken, there's no egg, you know, there's just shit to get done, you know. <laughs> so 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 we're like okay let's just let's just get a couple of irrational believers and let's do this lo and behold we raised like a small pocket of money and 2014 the year we launched the fund july 2014 to december we made 21 investments today i'm proud to say that from the 21 investments we have five unicorns three of them already public grab Bukalapak and Prenetics is a Hong Kong company which had Southeast Asia penetration at the time. And then we have Carsum and Carousel, who are unicorns who, who might go public, you know, at some point quite soon. So five out of 21 of those companies 
completely defied the odds. No credit card, who cares? GrabPay is probably more, more people are probably in GrabPay than credit cards right now, right? I don't know the exact data, but I'm, I'm guessing so. Like no internet connection, who gives a crap? Bukalapak has 10, no, right now they have probably a 14 million mitras, which are these offline stores that reach all of, all of Indonesia, the rest of Indonesia, being able to sell them goods and services and conveniences that people in the city would have, right? It's like, you don't need old world infrastructure to build a new world order. And I feel like these 21, the first 21 investments we made and five of these companies just prove it beyond doubt. And to think the rest of our 300 companies were 2015 vintage, we got companies like eFishery, like this, he's like a, he's like a slum, he's like Gibran, the founder, he's like a true slumdog millionaire. Like, let me, let me just like go deep on his story because it's so damn inspiring. Like he grew up in an Indonesia, Jakarta slum. He and his best friend had a shot at getting a scholarship to ITB, ITB, which is a local, a very good school. It's like the MIT of Indonesia. And like, so, and then his, his, his best friend like disappeared, like he couldn't find his best friend, but he got a scholarship and he went on. Right. So while he was on a scholarship, it wasn't a full scholarship. So he lived at the mosque, the local mosque, because he was like semi-homeless. He was just crashing in the mosque. He was eating one meal a day to get through school. One day he was so hungry. He fainted. He didn't know how long he was fainted. And he woke up by someone at a mosque and he's like, I do not want to be poor. Like being poor really sucks. It's like, I got to hustle and make some money. You know, I can't just like eat one meal a day. So he decided to become a fish farmer, you know, while he studied at school and he decided he, he you know, he was like doing classes. He needed to tend to his fish farm. So he created some technology to help him feed the fish in an automated, timely manner. And after he graduated, he created technology for fish farmers. So who would want to back like technology of a fish farmers, right? Like who would, have, who would have thought like that would become a thing, you know, after working with Gibran and, and, and he eventually we, 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 we massage the idea to give the technology away for semi-free to the fish farmers, but in exchange, the, 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 the IOT would know how many fish are in, in the, in the farms and would be able to feed them and know how big they will be. We can predict how much fish they will have. And as a result, we can sell the fish back in the market. Last 12 months revenue, Maggie, we're talking about 400 million US dollars in revenue. Wow. Okay, we're talking about 11% EBITDA. Like this is a profitable company with $400 million in revenue and growing like crazy. We're talking about them penetrating only two to 3% of the total fish sales in Indonesia. And they are launching in multiple regions. This company is going to be so big, right? And for Gibran himself, he bumped into his friend very recently, not too recently, maybe, but you know, he told me the story. He was like, he bumped to his friend who disappeared. He said, and the friend was pushing a push cart, selling stuff on the street. And so he said, hey, dude, like, where you been? He says, oh, my mom's house burned down. So I had to quit school and I had to kind of work to kind of take care of the family. Oh, wow. Now hit pause on that success as a timestamp for a moment. Think of that relative difference that one little thing can make between where Gibran eventually became and, and what Gibran's eventually doing versus his friend. Now we press play on this YouTube video of the narrative of Gibran and eFishery, and we can see in the future, will Gibran be more likely to empathize with all the other slumdog millionaires of the world? Will Gibran be more likely to reinvest his wealth into elevating people just like him and his upbringing, right? And then we press pause on that future timestamp because this is a movie we've watched before. We were first investors in Canva, you know, that's a, that's a female founded company from Australia, right? And they're so big. Like at, at, they launched their own endowment. They, they created their own endowment. Cliff and, and Melanie created their own endowment. It's like a $12 billion endowment. It's one of the biggest 
charitable organizations in all of Australia. Like, why would someone do it like that? Right? And can you imagine the world of billionaires that we can create from the rest of the world that would go on to reinvest that wealth and redistribute it and create more opportunity for others? And this is the moment where we look at that YouTube narrative and say, hey, wait a minute, this YouTube narrative is not just a Maggie Trey narrative. It's not a Kylie Ung narrative. It's not a Gibran narrative. This is our narrative. Like our narratives are so intertwined. Like we, we and success is so shared. Like when you when you start realizing that success isn't just yours, like there's a, there's a sense of shared success in communities. Like you know this, you're building Asian Hustle Network. You hear success stories from your network all the time. You would tear at them because like their stories are your stories. So, okay, I don't know what we were talking about, but. <laughs> no, that was really good. <laughs> no, Kylie, that was really good. I mean. But this is real talk. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? This is real stuff. No, yeah, definitely. And, I, and thank you for sharing that story. And it's it's amazing to see you have that mindset shift when, you know, you went to your colleague and asked Santi, you know, like what, what makes you want to have this plan or, you know, go with this, this plan for 10 years. And, you know, and you, you might not even know what it's going to turn out to become. Right. But yes, it's easy to start a startup. Yes. It's easy to start a company, but you might be only, you know, attacking one demographic. You might be only solving a problem for one demographic, but, you know, building a fund, you're serving a whole region, right? You're able to change the future and change the lives for a whole region and make so many, you know, dramatic changes and impactful changes for that entire Southeast Asia region. And it's, it's incredible, you know, that you were able to come to that conclusion and really push yourself to be like, hey, you know, let's let's just do it. Yeah, you know, you know, like I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it, but definitely Gibran did all the work, and you know, my colleagues at Five Hundred, and also all the founders, Anthony from Grab, Siray from Carousel, Zaki and Fadrin and Sinop from Bukalapak. These are real people working and obsessing and trading off like a decade of their lives to actually get that work done. Like I'm a small part of it. I mean, I appreciate your kind words, right? But I think it's very important for all venture capitalists not to take too much credit at the oh, same yeah. time. Like you know, we're like a small part of it, but I definitely want to play a bigger part in making sure these narratives affect people because here's what we don't want right now we're in a very 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 dangerous like precipice of whether or not venture capital as an industry gets shat on and vilified or whether or not it can have the air cover right to continue doing good work so let me tell you what i mean check this out long time ago lawyers right legal systems in every single country around the world were erected now, legal systems are like code. Literally, there is like codes, there's different acts, there's different things, and not everyone understands these codes. If you were a lawyer and trained as a lawyer, you would understand the codes. And you would say, oh, you have to go to jail. Oh, no, you don't go to jail. Oh, you have to, oh, you have to pay this person $20 million in compensation or whatever. Like, lawyers had a lot of power because they understood the codes. So very quickly, a lot of lawyers earned a lot of money. And very quickly, a lot of people start to look at these lawyers and say, hey, they're evil. And suddenly lawyers become the part, the, the butt of party jokes, right? So then people didn't like lawyers. The next thing that, the, the, the next wave of this phenomenon was banking and finance, right? Lotus123, Microsoft Excel, spreadsheets were created and spreadsheets allowed a lot of people to really, that really pushed the, the world of finance forward because it lowered the barrier entry of people to be able to run the kind of financial analysis they needed to do. Now it's, and, and that and other factors and the, the evolution of banking systems, you know, it, it really propelled Wall Street to rise. And suddenly you had bankers making a lot of money and a lot of people didn't understand why, but because the bankers understood 
the financial codes, right? And bankers understood how to refinance, how to financially engineer, create different financial instruments and extract a lot of money for themselves. And shit blew up. And some people were like, oh, the bankers got their bonuses, but shit blew up on us and now we're totally broke, right? And a lot of hatred went to bankers. Suddenly, Wall Street is vilified. Okay, what is happening with tech today? You see where I'm going with this? Now, these startup founders, you know, or, or, or startup bros or whatever it is that, that understood how to like be super geeky and have this hoodie and then, you know, and then suddenly they're like multi-billionaires and awkward with freckles and pimples, whatever stereotype you can imagine. It's like they were seen to be good people, right? They, they went against corporate machinery. They were disruptors. They were celebrated, but not anymore right? They're being called to Congress. They're being blamed for all kinds of things. And they, they have a part to play, right? They have a responsibility as well, right? But a lot of people are like, hey, all this kind of tech folks, San Francisco, you, you go, you're you from San Francisco. Like you can, you can see the divide. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. yeah my, you know, a lot of people blaming tech folks, gentrification, you know. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so my wife prices. and I, we, we, mm -hmm. we contribute a lot to a great organization called Code Tenderloin. And like the founder of Code Tenderloin, Adele Seymour, he grew up in the Tenderloin district. And he, he talks a lot about crossing market, meaning crossing Market Street. But just across Market Street, you got Salesforce Tower and this and that and everything. And then Tenderloin's on the other side. But he's not saying that with any angst. He's like, hey, let's bridge this. Let's cross market so people from the Tenderloin can get jobs in like Salesforce Tower and elsewhere. And he's been so successful at that, right? We can talk a bit more about that later. But the, the point is that like tech has a lot of work to do. VC, startup founders have a lot of work to do, not to just report on how much money they've raised. That doesn't impress anyone. No one cares. You know, only other tech people care and who's raising more money and so and so forth, right? The rest of the world is like, they, they're looking at like their, their, their cousin having upgrading to a Tesla. They're, they're driving a beat up Honda Civic. And like, they're like, hey, where's the fairness in this? And they're getting angry. Right. So I, 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 I think that there's a lot of work that venture capitalists like myself and also at 500 and a lot of peers in industry have to do to say, look, let's kind of like tell different types of stories that are more holistic. Right. We, we need to surface the real work that gets done, the real sacrifices that get done to serve people and, and the kind of farmers that get served, the kind of like rural audiences that get served by venture capital, not just having your ramen delivered two minutes faster by yet another company that looks kind of like same than this other app that you're trying to get a promo code off. Do, do you know what I mean? So, OK, but 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 with this in, uh, case in point, right, like uh, crypto is the perfect extension of that. Right, because I think that a lot of what I think the stereotype of a crypto bro, which is not cool, because there are a ton of women who make money in crypto as well. It's it's there is also that sense of people understanding something that's quite cryptic, and they know the codes to unlock that cash, you know, and it brings a lot of tension in. But I just want to again press pause and then press forward on this video because we've seen it before of law, we've seen it before of investment banking and finance, and now we're seeing it again with technology. Let, let's we know how this story is going to be, so let's make decisions today so the story is different. I love that. So I want to rewind a little bit because you mentioned that when you entered into the market for Southeast Asia, you there was no, you know, no use and no credit cards, you know, they didn't have the infrastructure, right? And so I want to know, like, what is the state of the startups in Southeast Asia today? And how have you seen it change throughout the years? Yeah. So for Southeast Asia, the different markets at different stages of maturity, I would say, I think that Singapore continues to be like a, a hub for investment, you know, activity and a lot of good talent and sophistication. And it, it hits a certain stage where of company where 
where Singapore is a good place to attract. Like if you're building a multi-billion dollar company, there are a lot of folks who prefer to be an expat in Singapore, right? So I think Singapore has cornered that market to some degree. And so, and a lot of people who are uh, bringing outside capital and creating funds and setting up funds and hiring people, they also do it in Singapore for some of those reasons. And then Indonesia as a, and sorry, naturally Singapore, you know, there's ton of great startup activity. This is good spot for deep tech, which is another chapter of tech that we have to fast forward to the future as well. But the Indonesia is getting very saturated, not saturated, that's the wrong word, delete, delete. Indonesia is getting, <laughs> Indonesia is getting more mature as a market and it's, it's, it's attracting a lot of new entrants. But I also think that like some, there's a bit of hype sometimes for Indonesia. And some of the companies deserve all the hype and some companies don't. Some sectors deserve, like really, really should be more invested. Some sectors are over-invested and that's a natural thing that happens with markets like Indonesia. That being said, Vietnam is up and coming, Philippines is up and coming, you know, Malaysia has always played an integral role in the trifecta of like Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. And so there are a lot of regional champions are born from Malaysia. Like the, the two founders of Grab are Malaysian, most of the founding team and all that are Malaysian as well, and many more companies like that. So a lot of the regional champions have a lot of Malaysian blood. So Malaysia is kind of like in part of that, that golden triangle of Malaysia, Indonesia, and Singapore. But yeah, so so Southeast Asia, that's kind of like how, how we see it. There, there's a ton of opportunities still. We're still in early innings. Uh, I'll sum up Southeast Asia in one other thing. If you look at generational developments in internet time, when China had the BAT, the Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, that was a huge step change since BAT. In fact, when we ran our unicorn research, and we do this once a year, but China-related unicorn research, we saw that it was 40% of Chinese unicorns at the time we ran the research were invested by Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. So when you look at like the PayPal mafia, the Facebook mafia, the Google mafia or ex Google network or whatnot, right? Like the Silicon Valley had like 60 years of generational compounding effects. Southeast Asia now is the GSG, Grab, Goto and, and C Limited. So those three tech giants are of course winged by Bukalapak and other companies who are also public, but these new generation of public tech companies in Southeast Asia kickstart the first step change for talent for validation and a new wave of like startup and innovation, people are gonna create a ton of cool companies, right? So so that's what I'll say, stay tuned, stay tuned. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure in the next five years, it's gonna be even more, it's yeah. gonna be even larger. The market's gonna be yeah. even larger and we're already moving at such a fast pace in Southeast Asia, right? I feel like it's it's not even an emerging market now, it's like already emerged. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very emerged. But yeah. I'll say this, though. Let me kind of draw the line to kind of, because I think that, you know, you cover, we covered a little bit of past, present, and we draw the line into the future mm -hmm. a little bit. <clears throat> here's, here's where things kind of land with the state of the internet and investing for Southeast Asia and for the rest of the world. There's about 8 billion-ish people in the world. Right now, there's about 4 billion-ish people on the internet. There's about, we don't have exact numbers on this, but speaking to a couple of folks, but three to 400 million people on-chain involved in crypto in an active way. Right now, 4 billion internet users will become 8 billion internet users faster than the first 4 billion did because smartphones from so many brands are so cheap and a lot of smartphone financing and telco networks, 5G, satellite, you name it. We're going to see another 4 billion internet users come online within our lifetimes and definitely within the decade. And we're going to see a lot of them are going to come online to a very new version of the internet. They're gonna to come to the latest version of the internet. So if the folks building internet platforms today 
care about disrupting even Facebook, TikTok, Google, and what else, there is actually new ground to kind of rethink or build new building blocks for the next 4 billion people coming online. Which is why when I work with, and when 500, we work with a lot of folks in Web3 as well. We, we were first backers in Solana in 2016. Axie Infinity was in part of Accelerator program in 2017 in Vietnam. Like we've been part of early companies, but they were never called projects. You know, people ask, hey, Kylie, do you invest in Web3 projects? Hey, I, I invest in companies. You know, it's, it's like, I, like, I want to build stuff with people that will compound across a decade. You know, and it's going to become like empires, right? And foundations for so much more things, right? And if it starts at a project, great. But let's talk about what it looks like as a company, right? And so I think with that in mind, like if a lot of builders today can build new infrastructure for not just for the existing on-chain people in 400 million, but you build it for the rest of the 3.6 billion people on the internet, but not yet on-chain, or even better, let's build for another 4 billion more people in the rest of the world internet. Like that's going to be great. But here's the challenge. Here's what we need to overcome, Maggie. The rest of the 4 billion people that will come on the internet, they are coming on the internet every day. They have a different background from us. Like even background, different background from you and I. A lot of yeah, them are Muslim, Muslim nations. Yeah. And like we can't have divisive narratives. There are a lot of peaceful people in some of these countries. And like it's, and, and they want opportunity too. You know, we, we're so proud. We had a Palestinian company raise a Series A recently, a female-founded Palestinian company raised a Series A. Like, it's a beautiful thing. We've also invested in Israeli companies, which do very well. Like, it's a beautiful thing, right? But like, they're, they're, we've, we're, we're, uh, at one of the years, I think it was last year, we're one of the most active investors in Africa. Like, one of our African uh, batch companies, Chipper Cash, like, they came to our accelerator program, and then after they graduated, like, they, they didn't get any like, much additional investment. Then all of us crowded in to back them more. Today, they're a $2 billion company that's the most prolific fintech company in Africa. So I'm think, so, so I just want to give these real stories because if anyone's listening here today and you wanted to Asian hustle your way, right, into, like, building something big, let's not hustle for ourselves. Let's hustle for the next 4 billion people who are coming online. Who are they? Where are they? What do they need? What can we do for them? When we think like that, you bet you're going to have a huge addressable market and you can bet that you're on the right side of history. Yeah, that's I love the way that you put it, because I think a lot of founders, when they first start a company, I think they're mostly not all of them. But I think the ones that don't really get to succeed is the ones who really only think about themselves. Right. But when you're building a company, you really have to think about how is this going to solve other people's problems? How is this going to change the world? How is this going to you know, impact a larger demographic other than my yeah. own community, right? And, and, it, and it can start with caring about themselves or making extra money. It yeah. can start yeah. with, you know, it can start with, but then like you mentioned, like the, it, the, the limits will be very, very near and it, it'll be very clear, like the limits will come very soon, right? right? So it, it, it gives you a starting point, but it's like an, a limited option. Like why not have more options? Why not be unlimited, right? So yeah. with, with unlimited empathy, like you, you'll get a lot of new options. Exactly. <laughs> so on that topic, what are some of the key things that you look for when you're investing into a company? For example, you know, what separates a good company from one that actually gets funding? Yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a that's a, always an important question. Like I I would say that like because today we invest not just in seed, we've got different vehicles for different regions, but we invest across the board. We can do seed. You know, we've got a growth fund as well. Uh, we can cut $5 million, $10 million checks. We're launching vehicles to actually cut even larger checks than that, like 20 million or more. So all, but typically we cut 500K checks. Now with that, 
said the company can be an idea stage even and we'd be ready to do it. So no company is like, you know, too early. But what we really, really, really do care about is like founder market fit, not just product market fit. <clears throat> we care about having founders who feel for what they're building, founders who have like an in and an advantage over other founders who are trying to build the same thing. Reason being is that whenever you build something worthwhile, you can have like eight competitors at minimum, all venture back doing the same thing. So if you have like unique insight and a unique relation to what you're building, it gives you an added advantage. And we really like that. The second thing is that like we, we are also looking for these days, we're looking for founders who are willing to build very ambitiously. I think that for some point in time, the ambition level was calibrated to be, oh, you know, product market fit, you know, have like early traction and it was, it was very traction oriented and, and seeing, and that's all very good. Right. But at the same time is that like, I've had to say no to a lot of companies because it became very myopic and it really hurts them to be overly myopic about solving or for early product market fit and traction without being able to narrate what happens next and next and next. Right. And without that ability to narrate what happens after, after, after it limits the amount of follow on capital that can come in. And so it does help to be a little bit bolder. Some folks will also challenge, I guess, this day and age, at least at this very moment, that the markets seem a bit soft. But we, can, we, we look for companies who are able to raise money no matter what time of day, what season it is. And a lot of that has to do with the personality of the founders being willing to not be overly influenced by other people and influenced by market trends and they'll find money somehow. I'll share maybe one last thing is that, and this is related to not just new founders, but people who are already building companies today. I've started to learn and reflect on companies which have shut down because through COVID and, and, and just even without COVID, some companies do shut down and some companies do shut down after raising a lot of money as well. I start noticing that a lot of them actually begin the, the descent, right? From, from their trajectory when they start to blame. The moment they're like, ah, oh, the stupid VC didn't do this, or the VC didn't reply, or like, oh, this person screwed me over with this deal, or that didn't come true. They said it would come true, but they didn't, you know? Like these things are very real things that happen. And I'm not discounting the fact that there are rough and tumbles, and a lot of things do fall through the cracks. And even in my personal experience, and even at 500, we had dozens upon a dozen things that would be make or break that didn't follow through, right? But that recovery rate, is that you can either say, okay, let me reflect on that, hit pause, reflect, okay, let me hit play and let's go forward. Like you can either do that, or you can kind of press play and go rewind or press play and just like turn off and kill the tab and just like, ah, screw this, you know? And, and you can go into an energy loop that will suck you down. And for founders of the companies, like if your energy regulation is not the best in the company, your energy is gonna, ref uh, is gonna affect everybody else's energy. And then your co-founders, your management team, it's like, it doesn't need to be said. Oh yeah, it'll definitely. be felt. Right, they it can will sense it. Be they can felt. sense it. They can, yeah. they can sense it. They don't they even know fear. what's happening. Yeah. yeah, they don't even know what's happening. They can sense blame. They can sense bitterness. They can sense defeat. They can sense anger. So these are emotions that we, we reflect on and we embrace. But again, the recovery period, how can you transmute that energy? How can you alchemize that energy in a way where you kind of make a comeback? Right. And you come back stronger, you pivot, you turn something that, that seems like a turd, you know, into like a gem. Like, so I think some of those skills are things that like I try to do better at as a VC and I teach my teams and I work with my partners to say, how can we at least lean on that skill, the turnaround skill a little bit more 
And I think that's like very, very timely today. But I just wanted to signal that as well to your question, because I think some of the founders, like it, you, you, it's, it's so hard to know how good you are at that till shit gets real bad, right? Oh yeah, definitely. And, you know, shit will most likely hit the fan, you know, and, yeah. and you won't know how you're going to react until it happens. But that's really, really good insight. I think a lot of founders, they can either, you know, turn their situation into a good one and just come out of it, recover really quickly, or they can you know, start blaming other people, which is like the easy thing to do, right? And I yeah, yeah, no, I, I know we're running like way over time in some sense, but you know, let me, let me, let me kind of like round this out, right? I think that there is a misconception that people need to learn the harshest life lessons from the biggest mistakes or the biggest disasters. And while that is largely true, there's a lot of value in learning from the smallest things that happen. There's a ton of value in learning from other people's mistakes as well, okay? And the equation is this. If you learn, if you have a very big mistake that costs you a lot, the price you pay is high. So even though the lesson value is high, maybe you got like a cost of 100 divided by value of 100, so your, your, your lesson value is 100. But if your cost of your lesson is one point, but your lesson value is 100, then that the value of the whole lesson is 100, right? And if you learn from somebody else, the cost is zero. So any anything you learn from them divided by zero is infinity, right? So as far as this equation is concerned, what, why I bring this up is because I encourage founders to build a good relationship with their life partners, their spouse, to build a good relationship with their parents. Because like being able to overcome any kind of like a family and any kind of relationship interaction gives them like new skills that they can use at work. And the skills they use at work with their investors and with their customers or their team members can also have this transferable effect to their personal life. And you're creating like an energy cycle where you don't feel like you're in a war zone at work and then come home to a war zone at home. You feel like you're a place of energy at work and also place of energy at home. So the energy cycle is very conducive, right? So a lot of transferable lessons. So if something small happens, reflect on it a lot and then say, hey, how can I use this when something big happens, right? How can I use this to turn around? And there are a lot of examples, you know, but I don't think I need to delve into them because, you know, a lot of the listeners of this show can probably already nod their heads and relate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I know we're coming to an end for the podcast, but I do have one interesting question that I want to ask you, Kylie. I learned that you've been very vocal about how you decided to change your life on New Year's Day on in uh, 2016 and essentially turned vegan. What led to this decision and how has that changed your life? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of the decisions I made in 2016 are part of like a larger narrative that I'm trying to build as well about the, the ability to evolve. So a lot of my close friends like know me for changing my wardrobe, my hairstyles, like every couple of years, you know, and also trying to redefine my approach and even flex on my personality test. That means if I do a personality test, I get a certain result, you know, at some point I'm like, okay, let me try to be a little bit different, right, from who I am. So I think this type of evolution is something I just enjoy as a hobby, this reinvention. But I started to see that that's essentially what a lot of entrepreneurs do as well. Like they naturally change their style as the company goes from a seed company all the way to a public company. You know, they change how they operate. They change how they think. They rewrite their belief systems. So for me, the veganism thing you brought up, like I noticed at the time that my mind was entering what I call certain loops that are repetitive. And some of those loops were dangerous. For example, I was like in a bit of like a validation loop where like I, it, I almost had a dopamine hit if somebody told me I was smart or something, you know? And then so I was like, I don't want to be controlled by seeking validation, right? So I want to be aware of that and kind of like rewrite and, and equip myself with different beliefs so that I don't need to fall in that loop. So that's like a very subtle thing, but shopping was one, you know, at the time, like, I don't know why I just bought a lot of random stuff 
And I remember reflecting, like I was buying this like salt and pepper shaker. And then I was like, oh, it looks like a fox, you know? And like, why do I want to buy this shit? It costs like a $50 or something. And then like, if I bought it, maybe some people would come over to the house for dinner and they'd be like, oh, this is so cool. Where'd you get it from? I'm like, what is what a stupid internal conversation is that, right? I put the damn salt or paper. I mean, I wanted to just throw, throw the, the salt and pepper shaker on the ground, but I didn't. I just left it there. I'm like, no, number one, I'm not going to buy this. And number two is that why am I shopping? Like what kind of loops are going on in my head that make me get dopamine hits or what kind of, you know? I said, no, I'm just going to like stop shopping for a whole year and see what happens, right? Throughout my wardrobe. Now, at the time, like I was, of course, like going through some experiments with fitness as well, because like through my entrepreneurial life, like I didn't focus on fitness so much, right? So I was trying to do a bit of a turnaround. So I was going into a lot of body hacking, a lot of health. And then I saw that I was eating a lot of meat. I was eating a ton of meat, a lot of eggs, right? As part to increase protein, you know, at least I was on that paradigm at the time. And uh, I didn't feel good. And then I met, I, 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 interacted with someone who was part of this like WhatsApp group <clears throat> who she said, Hey, who wants to do a five day vegan challenge? And you know, like I thought she was like an interesting person. I wanted to get her attention. So I was like, Oh, Hey, let me, <clears throat> I'll join this, you know? And uh, so it was in Bali and uh, you know, we tried a bunch of restaurants and you know, it, it really, I really started to see that I could change who I was in the subtlest ways as it pertains to diet. To think that all my life, like I just want to eat more and more meat and being meat was like manly, it was masculine. I was getting more protein. It's also like a middle-class thing that, you know, when, when my family got richer, we went for steaks, you know, like when we had cod, salmon, you know, like I didn't have salmon until later in my life. I'm like, ooh, what's this fish, right? So it's like, you kind of like upgrade your lives. And you see this with a lot of new rich and new emerging markets as well. They consume more protein with the wealthier to get, right? And different qualities of protein. So it's so much associations with meat that has been embedded. And for five days, none of that mattered. And so I was like, wow, this is such a re revelation. What if I just like stopped eating any of this forever? And so every meal I had, I would remind myself, you are stronger than this cheesecake you're stronger than this like milkshake. You're stronger than this egg waffle or something. Like you, and you can rewrite any code in your mind. So today, like I, I, I mean, every meal I have, like I, I take a moment to appreciate the meal because I just appreciate eating in general. Like I, I just love eating. But number two is that I remind myself that like anything in my mind right now, if I choose to change it, I can do it. And I can hit the delete button, I can rewrite it, and I keep it for the rest of my life. So that's why I stay with veganism, because it's because it gives me that reminder of self mastery. But of course, the upsides on health and the and and animal cruelty, all those are just like bonuses for me. Yeah. But of course, like you know, the the, the girl who introduced me to the five day vegan challenge, like we we've been married now for six years. Oh, um, congratulations. Yeah, it, and she she continues to be like such a positive influence like she she also kind of like rewires her brain and she kind of like serves and she's wired very differently she's never had a job that paid for money she never worked for money her entire life like she's always just doing social work and just like watching how she works with animal causes with homelessness it's just such a marvel right yeah yeah so very very wow. grateful for all of that Oh, her, her heart is so pure. And I mean, I absolutely agree. I feel like you constantly have to challenge yourself to, you know, make some changes. Otherwise, you know, the only way that you're able to improve is to make changes, right? Otherwise, you're just yeah. going to constantly stay in the same place when you're not improving, when you're not changing. And I love that you constantly look for those opportunities to like yeah. rewire yourselves, change yourself so that you can become an, a more evolved person or evolved version of yourself today. So we have one last question for you, Kylie. Ooh, okay. <laughs> okay. 
So what what are your goals and what do you want to achieve in the next several years? Okay, thank you for asking that question. Goals. So I've not ever really been much of a goal type person, but I've always wanted to just stay on on on, on a journey that I care about. So I think about it like, have you read Ang Lee's Never Ending Dream? Oh, it's, it's, I've heard of it, but I haven't yeah, gotten the chance. It's like a little it. essay. Yeah, it's a little essay. It's originally in Mandarin, but it was translated. So if you Google Ang Lee Never Ending Dream, it's so heartwarming. It's a short read. It's beautiful. But like, I was so moved. I was like tearing when I read it because like, I felt understood by what was said because I kind of grew up in a goal-oriented society. Like I think a lot of people, what if I your goals? What if your goals? Right? But like for me, like I somehow didn't fully relate to that so much. And so the never-ending dream is as such. I I feel like I'm living this dream that I've always led as a creative person. And it didn't matter if I was dancing <laughs> alone. I didn't know about singing or beatboxing. There was like no music to New Kids on the Block, the right stuff as I was dancing at eight years old. Like right now with you, I'm still dancing, Maggie. Like, I don't know if what I'm doing is rational or not. I, I don't have that concept of rationality. And, and I just want to dance. Like I want to sing, I want to write, I want to do things which I feel connects to a lot of people. And in fact, I've recently got a coach for freestyle rapping as well, right? For that to, you know, for more avenues of expression, but how it relates to business and, and the kind of work that I do as a venture capitalist with 500 Global is that 500 is part of a larger, larger narrative where it's kind of like a global first thing. I talked about wiring up the rest of the world, 4 billion internet users to 8 billion internet users. We want to be part of that. We want to be part of that in an accelerated way. There's a reason why we're, our staff members are distributed across like 20 over locations. That our COO, Courtney, she moves her family, her husband and four kids to live in Riyadh. You know, there's like a, like we want to be in places and immerse ourselves in the rest of the world. And then that shuffling of cards, it doesn't matter where we're from, what our upbringings are, we're trying to create a shared future. So I think the first thing is, can we wire up the rest of the world so more people can create, more people can build? What we don't want is that the rest of the world are just like completely addicted to TikTok and we're just consumers. And it doesn't matter if it's TikTok or Netflix or opium or cigarettes or alcohol. It, it doesn't matter what that consumption addiction is. If the rest of the world is just consumption only, like we're going to be slaves. Yeah, it has the same effect. Yeah, so, so we want a, a world where enough of us build for the rest of us. That's one of the dreams. Part of this dream is to rewrite those narratives, to tell it. At 500, we don't go around saying that, oh, you know, our CEO and founder is female and, and Asian, Christine Tsai. We wouldn't go say, oh, half of our management is female. We don't go around chest thumping, oh, hey, we're female. You know, it's not, right? This, this is totally opposite of what we do. We're, we're trying to build something meaningful for the world. It doesn't matter who we are, right? But if the narrative comes around, the fact that like our CEO and COO or moms and they raise their kids who are building 500 and the narrative becomes if the 90s, 90s to 2010s were the revenge of the nerds, the speckled hoodie computer nerds, like maybe the, the 2020s onwards would be the revenge of the moms. What about Christine and Courtney and all that? If, the, if that narrative is like an extension of what's actually real and what's uplifting people and economies everywhere, so be it, right? So I think there are a lot of beautiful narratives, narratives that unite. 
there's way too much narratives that divide. And so there are a lot of signals along the way. It's kind of like, you know, Maggie, when you wake up from a dream and you have like a bit of deja vu somewhere and you're like, hey, wait a minute, didn't I dream of that? These kind of like signals that tell you on the right track. I see this in the work we do. When we launched our 500 Istanbul fund those years ago, the front page of one of the local papers, like in fact, like we were having a team retreat and I remember Rina owner who, who was driving that at the time, she was late for the team retreat because the Istanbul airport got bombed. So the front page of the news is like local, like there's like the Istanbul airport got bombed by local terrorists or whatnot. And then on the right side of it, 500 launches a new fund in Istanbul. <laughs> so you have this, do you know what I mean? It, it, that, yeah. that, that is exactly a signal, a deja vu moment to say, hey, you're on the right track. Like we need more narratives that unite, narratives of hope. That's what this world needs more of, right? And lastly, all this, this is super connected in this shared dream because Ray Dalio, who I respect so much, he talks about the new world order with his latest book as well. And he's kind of opened up our eyes to say, hey, the new world order is going to be very different from the last. And there's a lot of things us and individuals can do. Like I'm so inspired by that because in a lot of ways, if the new world order is inevitable and, and life in the past thousands and thousands of years, forwards and backwards in this super long form YouTube video that we're watching together, the new world order should be at least better than the last, right? Like don't give us a shittier version, right? So what is new? What are the features of a new world order that's better? Will, will all the challenger nations, not just the market leader nations like US or China or whatnot, will the challenger nations get a fair bet? Like will, will the challenger nations be equipped to compete, right? Will venture capital as an asset class and all these asset classes that return so much money to people be more inclusive. So our grandmothers can actually invest in venture capital. Our grandmothers can invest in, in, in startups that make it big, right? Not just public markets and so and so forth, right? So I feel like there's a lot of things that we can dream of in this new world order and we can do them. So I know it's a bit of a longer answer to what my goals are, but I hope it gives you the color of what it is. Oh yeah, no, I, I love it. And I can just, you know, I love the mentality that you have and I can just sense, you know, there's a lot of people who do things and want to succeed for the wrong reasons, but I can definitely tell that you just want to see the people in our generation and our world to, you know, have a future, you know, have yeah. an opportunity to have a future. And yeah. it's just so amazing to see. Yeah, yeah we, pick, we pick a little part to play. We've laid that right. brick, you know, and whether we have enough life to lead to see that brick become like something larger than that, it, it'd be great, right? We're all laying a little brick of foundations for the future. Yeah, I think that maybe the last thing like I'll add is to make it really crispy. New world order, being global first, that's really the way to think about it, which is why we rebranded ourselves to 500 Global because when we really reflect on what it means to be global first, like that will really unpack what the new world order will be and who we can be in a world that's truly global. Yeah, absolutely. So Kylie, where can our listeners find out more about you online? So I haven't been super active. You know, I shared with you earlier that I've only been part of two other podcasts in my life, right? And I really wanted to do this because like a lot of friends recommend Asian Hustle Network, the, the, how authentic it is and the audience that you serve and, and the strength of the community. And I think that both yourself, you know, and, and, and Brian have done a great job. So I think that the, I think with, with, with following up, you know, I don't really know. <laughs> okay, but maybe, you can follow me on Instagram. You can follow me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Twitter and you can... You can do all of those things. I need all the followers I can get, I guess. So please do that. Hey, we'll do. <laughs> but, but I will be starting. I will be starting to create more content, right? I will start to try to see and and you give me feedback. Anyone listening, give me feedback. Like, what's valuable to you? What's valuable to other people? Well, I have a lot of friends say, to, "Hey, Kylie, you should create more content. Like, people need to hear some of these things." I'm like, "Hear what? 
you know so like like you tell me right like i'll i'll only i'll do it if it's useful to you right and but yeah follow google me and follow me in all the channels you know i'll, I'll definitely try to make more content Perfect. otherwise invite we'll, me back for a show maggie <laughs> we'll leave all of that in the show notes and everything that you said on this podcast was extremely useful kylie and i mean it was i learned so much from you just in this last hour and just wanted to commend you for all the work that you've been doing but thank you so much for being on the podcast today kylie it was amazing learning about your story all right okay we'll talk soon thank you so much maggie all right thank you hey guys we hope you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the show we would like to get to the top 10 on itunes so be sure to leave us a five-star review We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.